All right, we are in part two of a series called How to Neighbor. Brian kind of kicked things off last week. And we really, um, as, as we talked about, this has been kind of in the works for, for two years. We've been reading books on this and kind of studying. And the reason it's taken us kind of this long to kind of un- unveil it and, and preach it is for, for two years we've been deciding how exactly do we, want, do we want to kind of bring this out to people. We feel like this is one of the fundamental things um, that every Christian should learn, that every Christ follower, and even if you're not a, a Christ follower, if you're not a churchgoer, maybe this is your first time in church and you, you feel like this is all just a little bit weird, I get it. But this is one of those things that we want every, everyone to know. It's, it's one of the most important things, I think, that we can begin to practice as we continue to take steps to know who Jesus is and what he wants from us. But more than that, the, the, the outcome of this, and this is kind of what I'm going to talk talk about today, the potential in, in, in this practice, in, in practicing what we're going to talk about, in, in neighboring, it really has the ability to change the world. And I know sometimes we hear that phrase and we get a little scared off by it, and you know, a lot of churches use that phrase, change the world, we're going to change the world, and everyone's like, yeah, sure, change the world. How am I supposed to change the world? I, you know, I, I can barely get my five-year-old up in the morning. I can't even change a diaper, and you want me to change the world? Fears aside, we're going to talk about that this morning and we're going to address it. But we started off by talking about the great commandment. And you probably have heard this before or in some kind of uh, um, verbiage or fashion before. But the great commandment is this. Jesus was asked uh, by a Pharisee, by a teacher of the law, by somebody who knew all of the old laws, like the 666 of them or whatever they were, like all of these laws. They came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, what's the most important law? Out of everything that's out there, what's the most important thing we should be doing? And Jesus answered his question this way. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he continues it. Because you hear that, and you're like, yeah, of course, we got to love God. Then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying you you have to love God, and you have to learn to love people. You have to love God and love people. And that sounds, it, it sounds, of course, that's what Christians should do. He was saying that every law, all 660, some of them, they kind of hang on these two things, whether we love God and, and we love our neighbors. And you, you would think, especially if you're not a Christian, well, this is what Christians should do. They should love people. But as we know and as we see in our culture, and maybe perhaps how we even see on the news, Christians don't often love people well, do we? We've, we've kind of lost sight of that. And, and I'm guessing, and this is kind of our theory as we kind of head into this, I think it's because we just kind of see this whole thing of love people, and it's like, yeah, I love everyone, but, but I really don't want to be friends with them. I don't like, you know, I don't know that I, I like, love them, but I don't really like the guy across the street. And, you know, that guy over there, he's, hey, I love him. I'm a Christian. i got to love him, but I really don't, don't want to like him. And we kind of have this, this big vision of loving everyone, and because this vision is so big of loving everyone, really what ends up happening is we kind of love no one. Because it kind of gets lost in the mix. It's like, it's like the vision or, or the mission is a little too big. Have you ever asked your kids to clean their room and they just completely fall apart? I asked my daughter that I had to clean a room and she literally broke down weeping in tears. I can't. I can't. It's just such a mess. I don't even know where to start. It's kind of like that. Like, oh, I want you to love God and I want you to love people. And we just hear like, I can't. It's too much. There's too many. So we had this idea, well, what if, what if we just kind of took that idea of loving your neighbor and we made it exceptionally, exceptionally intimate and close to home? What if all you had to do was love your actual neighbors? Now, we know that's not all Jesus is saying. He's saying we, as Christians, we should love everyone. As Christ followers, we should love everybody. But what if just for application's sake, you started with your neighbors? Who are your neighbors? Brian introduced us last week and he kind of gave you that magnet. If you got, got a bulletin, you have that magnet in there. There's a little picture 
perfect. This is kind of you. I mean, it's not really you. It's kind of like the idea of your home. And I know this doesn't work. We're not like in these perfectly square neighborhoods. You might be on a really long street. You might live in a circle. And like, how does that add out? Here's the whole idea. <clears throat> you're here and you have neighbors surrounding your house. You may have neighbors just on your long stretch because you live out in the country and you have you know, 30 acres behind you. And who knows what's back there? Who lives next to you? Who's your neighbor? Who are the people that, that in proximity are closest to you? Do you know their names? Could you tell me a little about their job? My guess is, and not just my guess, statistics kind of say that most people don't. We're familiar. You know, I know that guy. I know his car, and he, you know, he brings his trash out on Monday nights, and I, I know them. They have, a, you know, they have the parties, and you know, they're just, we don't, we're not friends with those kind of people. You, you kind of have ideas about them, but do you actually know your neighbors? Do you know them enough to put their names in? And then he presented the challenge to you. Would you do that? Would you spend time over the next few weeks, maybe over, over this summer, because sometimes it might take, take some time, filling in those squares and writing in your neighbor's names, figuring out who your neighbor is? Because as we're going to talk about today and kind of continue the conversation, it's really important for us to get connected this way. It's really important for us to, to kind of know our neighbors because we were built for those connections. We were built to be in relationships. We were built, we were made, we were kind of fashioned and designed to be in, 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 in relationship, to engage with people. But as we've seen, that's not how it happens, is it? A few months ago, I was out to eat with my daughters. We went to that hibachi place where they cook in front of you and put on a show. And my kids are loving it, like flames are shooting up in the air and vegetables are flying everywhere and he's throwing stuff in his hat. It's just, it's like a great show, it's wild. And I turned over and looked at the table behind me and I'm not exaggerating when I say, every single person, a table of 12 people, every single person is on their phones like this. You paid for a show! And you're looking at your phone. I mean, I felt bad for the chef. He's sitting there flipping things around and flames are shooting and no one's even talking to him. Down on his phone. I mean, I, tried, I was like, you're doing great, man. Good job. It, it, like, we're made for connection. We're made to, 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 to be in relationship with people. But, but as we've seen, as culture develops, as technology develops, we, we see ourselves kind of pulling apart. We are in the most, like, <clears throat> connected time in history. I mean, you can connect with people around the world right now. Yet as, as we have, as a culture and as technology grows, as we become more and more connected, what we've seen is we've become more and more isolated. Technology becomes a substitute for relationships. There is a study done in Forbes magazine that, that says <clears throat> people have become so increasingly lonely that loneliness is now a killer. It's actually more dangerous <clears throat> than obesity, than smoking, than nutrition and exercise. Because the more lonely people, people feel, the more those feelings kind of come up, that, that it can actually kill you, that it leads to thoughts of suicide, that it leads towards thoughts of depression and anxiety. I mean, it's, it's no wonder we see suicides all the time. Anthony Bourdain, just a few weeks ago, a guy who looks like he had it all, we're like famous around the world, got to travel and do these incredible things. And yet he was so exceptionally lonely, he thought the better option was to take his life than to continue to live it. And it's not just him. We see stories of, of your friends' kids in high school, and maybe even your friend or, or someone even closer to home. Because in a world that's so increasingly connected, what we find is we are so increasingly isolated. And the more isolated we are, the more those feelings grow, the more likely we are to die early, according to Forbes. And social media plays a big part in it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, to demonize social media. I like Instagram and I like Facebook. I get to, to connect to my family and my family is not from Maine. So that's kind of my only connection to them as it is. It's really nice and it's fun. But when social media becomes a substitute for engagement, for relationships, it's dangerous. 
The more someone uses social media, this was actually an article done in uh, psychology today, the more someone uses social media, the more likely they are to socially disengage. <coughs> and the more we disengage, the more isolated we feel. And the more isolated we feel, <clears throat> the more thoughts of depression and anxiety and loneliness creep in. You see, we were made for relationships. We were made to be connected. We were made to engage. Yet it's so easy for us to pull apart from that, isn't it? It's so easy for us to not do those kinds of things. It's so easy for us to just kind of be focused on, on our lives and, and on, on what we're going to do and on how we're spending our time. <clears throat> but I think the plan is so much bigger for that. The plan for that really is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a word that, that my guess is you heard of, but you haven't really um, kind of thought it out as we're going to talk about it today. And it's a, a word that doesn't get talked about a lot. It's kind of like, like an old-time word. As, as a matter of fact, as I say it, my guess is there are going to be some like striking images that kind of come to your mind. What we're going to talk about today is hospitality. And I'm guessing when, when <clears throat> if you're anything like me, <clears throat> when you think hospitality, excuse me, I'm going to throw a cough drop in before I embarrass myself and <clears throat> do something worse like gag on stage. <clears throat> when you think hospitality, you might get images of like Martha Stewart or like these really stuffy, formal um, dinner parties. <clears throat> or maybe you think of like tourism or the hotel industry. But when we think of, of, of hospitality, we don't often have <clears throat> the idea of what hospitality actually is. We, we have all these other images of what hospitality could be, like HGTV and massive dinner scapes and, and how to decorate your table and things like that. that. Hospitality is so much more. Hospitality, by definition, is this. It's the friendly or generous reception and entertainment of guests, visitors, and strangers. Now, I grew up in an Italian family, and in an Italian family, we call that dinner. Because <clears throat> that, that's, like, that's like Wednesday night. And it sounds funny, but I mean, if you come from an Italian background and your family you know, lived like that, that's, how, that's what it was. That's exactly what, what food was. My mom always cooked food and always cooked more than enough. Well, as a matter of fact, when I got married, I didn't know how to cook for two people. <clears throat> the first meal I made, I think I cooked two pounds of pasta because I had no idea like a quarter pound of pasta is good enough for a person. I just, well, my mom always cooked like four pounds of pasta. There's two. Two pounds will be plenty. That's how she did. She always cooked more. In an Italian family, cooking just enough was never good enough. You always cooked more. And if you asked her why, because you never know who's going to come by. And on most nights, one, two, sometimes three people would just kind of poke their heads in around dinner time or after dinner for coffee and dessert. That's just how it was. You, you prepared for guests. She always had those Enemans, you know, the Enemans packages like donuts or cookies. We always had a few of those in the pantry. And as kids, you try to like sneak a snack in the afternoon and go to grab them. She'd smack your hand. Those are for guests. Oh, who's coming over? I don't know, but somebody might come over. Don't touch the enemas. And sure enough, someone would poke their head in around dinner time, or maybe a little after dinner. A pot of coffee would be on, sit at the table. The, the enemas would come out. That was just, it was a way of life. It's how we lived. It, it, it's, how, it, it's just how I grew up. As a matter of fact, I remember one time my wife and I, we were engaged. She came back to, to visit my parents with me and it's a Sunday morning, and there's like hustle and bustle now. People are getting ready. We're sitting at the table drinking our coffee, and this guy, who I know, but she had no clue, just walked in the house, walked into the kitchen, opened the cupboards, <clears throat> got himself a cup, poured himself some coffee, sat down at the table and started talking to me. And she is, like, freaked out. So we finish our conversation. He heads out to go to church. She's like, who is that guy? I was like, well, that's so-and-so. He was my history teacher, like, you know, lives up the road. What is he doing here? Oh, he just comes in for a cup of coffee. Like, whenever he wants, 
Yeah, kind of. I mean, we always have coffee on this. What's the big deal? It's just that's how we lived. We lived a life in preparation for guests, thinking that it was always better to entertain and have people around. That's what it was like for me. But when you fast forward to what life's like today, it's the, the complete opposite, isn't it? <clears throat> it's like we're making food just enough for us. If you come, bring everything else. Or worse, like you sit in the house and your doorbell rings at night and, and you're horrified, aren't you? You're watching TV and the doorbell rings. Who is it? Who, who's ringing? Who would ring my doorbell? Who would show up? Sometimes you even hide, don't you? It's like, get the kids down. Don't say a word. Maybe they won't think we're here. Turn the cell phones off. If we're quiet long enough, they'll go away. We just have this, this completely different idea about our homes. That our homes are meant to entertain. Our homes are meant to bring people in. Our homes are meant to isolate and keep people out. And why would people come and bother me in my fortress of solitude? That's kind of how we think about our homes, isn't it? See, I want to post something to you this morning that I think you can change the world. And I think the way you change the world is something you already have. It's a tool you already have in your possession. It's your apartment. It's your home. It's your backyard. Maybe it's even your front yard. But God has given you the tools and the ability to do something significant and make a difference in your world and in the world of those around you. But we just need the vision for it. You see, so many of us, we hear that, 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 that like, thought of changing the world, and it's like, really? That sounds great. But me? Like, Jim, you don't even know me. How am I supposed to change the world? And, and Jim, like, like, you tell me to change the world, but, but it's Tuesday morning. And, you know, all I've done this morning is get up and make a cup of coffee and get to work to sit in front of my screen for another day of drudgery. <clears throat> and that dream job where all I did was something that was productive and exciting and extraordinary and made a difference, that's kind of like a pipe dream. That doesn't even exist anymore. Like, that's just something that, that, that scam artists tell college kids. And if I saw them, I'd, I'd punch them right in the face for doing that to me. Make me live with this dream of doing something great. And now I'm just sitting in front of a screen wasting my life away. And then if I can make it through to the evening without, you know, having some great regret, I, I commute home. And if I make it in time for dinner, I might see my family for a few minutes before they move on. But more often than not, I'm just going to heat up my leftovers and I'm going to pray that that DVR recorded my favorite show. And I sit down in front of the TV and, and what has become like this once in a while thing has now become our nightly ritual of just kind of isolating ourselves because I, I made it through my day and now I'm home and I have, I have the peace and I have the comforts of home. So really, how can I change the world? How am I supposed to make a difference? We've kind of lost hope of that. We've kind of lost sight of that. We've kind of lost the idea that, that Jesus, when he, when he was here, he set us on a mission to go and to change the world, to make disciples of all nations, bringing, bringing this message of me, of, of, of Jesus, of the gospel, and it would make a difference and change the world. And we're thinking, I, I, I just got to get through today. How am I supposed to change the world? I mean, really, when, when am I supposed to change the world? Because so many of us have lost sight of what it would be like to open our homes, to open our lives, and to build relationships with those around us. You see, hospitality has become like, like America's pastime. And, and now, when we think of our homes, we have these, these really different views of what, what our home should be. It's like this, this private retreat. It, it's it's this, this escape from, from the world. No longer do we use it to entertain. No longer do we use it to build relationships. We use it to isolate relationships. We get so wrapped up in the, this, this 
a big idea of changing the world. That it's kind of like I said before, that the vision's almost so big. It's like, how am I supposed to do it? It's so big. I can't make a difference. I can't change the world. I can barely get myself to work on time. Somebody else is going to have to do that. And what we've really lost sight of is, is that oftentimes it's the small things that make the big difference. I mean, really, the creation of the light bulb, a small idea, changed the world forever. A battery, someone decided to create a battery, and now we can walk around for days with a device and connect and talk to anyone around the world. A small idea changed the world. Facebook, somebody created Facebook so that they could connect classmates in colleges. And now almost everyone in the world has a Facebook account. You see, don't neglect We can't lose sight that something small has the ability and the potential to do something significant. We see it in the gospel. I mean, Jesus, one man, changed the world forever. That that David, this young man, he killed a giant with a few small stones. God's all about taking these small kind of insignificant beginnings and using it to do something significant in the end. And my guess is, and my hope and my prayer is, that that's kind of what you want for you. We, we all want to be a part of something significant, don't we? I mean, if you were really to ask yourselves, you, you, you do. I mean, it's, it's evidenced in, in your dreams. It's evidenced in how you talk to your kids, right? We say, like, like, you could accomplish anything. You could do anything you want because they want, to be, they want to feel significant. At the end of your life, when you look back, it's not like, how much TV did I get to watch? But you hope, man, did I make a difference? Did I do something significant? Did I do something that maybe changed someone's world forever? You see, we all want to be a part of something significant. But we've just forgot how. So this morning, I want to remind us. I want to remind us that there is a way. And it might be a little uncomfortable at first, but it has the ability to do something extraordinary. We've just got to get a different view for our home. You see, most of us, we kind of view our homes four ways. right? The first way we view our home is through isolation. If you turn on HGTV, and I'm not, again... This isn't a message about demonizing anything. I like HGTV. My wife likes HGTV. My kids are fixer-upper fanatics. When we bought our house, they just kept praying, why can't uh, Joanna and Skip come up here and do our house? <clears throat> I was praying for the same thing, believe it or not. <clears throat> so I'm not, I'm not against HGTV. But you turn on HGTV, and they begin to talk about their home, and, and you hear these kind of words that go with the home all the time, right? It's your oasis. It's your, your private retreat. It's your refuge away from the busyness of the world. It's, it, it's your isolated thing. And, and what surprises me is years ago, we had front porches. You guys remember what a front porch was? You had front porches and you would sit on your front porch. I grew up with that. <clears throat> so I, I mean, I'm not that old, but maybe my life is just a little old-fashioned. But we had a front porch, and we'd sit out there at night, and we'd drink our coffee, our iced tea, and we'd talk, and we'd just wait for someone to come by. That was like, like the thing to do. I mean, you were a kid. I couldn't drive. I lived in... You know, I, I didn't have a license. I just waited for other people to come my way. And people did. And we'd sit and they'd come on the porch and we'd talk. We'd get to know our neighbors and we'd get to build relationships and make friendships. All because we had a front porch. And, and over time, we've exchanged the front porch for the back patio and for privacy fences. And, and, and it's almost like we've done all we can to keep people out of our lives. And I'm not against fences. I mean, if you're a parent, sometimes you get a fence to, to keep your kids in. I, I get that. You might need that. That's not a bad thing. And I like back patios. But we've shifted in our thinking and in our psychology a little bit away from from being out in the open to being able to build a relationship to isolating myself and keeping me closed in into my perfect, kind of safe, isolated little home. You see, we've exchanged building relationships for isolating relationships. 
Another way we view our home is through relaxation. Right? This is the idea that our home is our primary place and, and our primary purpose of sanctuary. That I, I work hard, and when I work hard, I need to come home, and I need to relax, and, and my home should be a p- p- place of relaxation and peace. And if other people are there, I can't relax. And I'll, I'm all for having your home be, being a place of peace. But when its primary purpose is relaxation, you, you, you're kind of missing the point of this amazing tool that God's given you. Another way we view our homes is through entertainment. Our desire for isolation and relaxation has kind of made us these, these entertainment hogs. We, just, we want to be entertained all the time. And it's, there's nothing wrong with watching Netflix. I've been watched a few shows, as I'm sure you have as well. <clears throat> but we just can't, we can't consume enough. We, we can't get enough. It's all about keeping myself entertained and keeping myself kind of enjoying and forgetting about the world outside. I want to I escape from the world and just be entertained. And we've become so hooked on entertainment that, that statistics say now that, we, that the average American spends five hours a day watching TV. Five, I mean, that's a lot, especially when you think we kind of live our lives in thirds, right? We, we sleep for eight hours, we work for eight hours, we have eight hours to do the rest, and you spend more than half that time watching TV. It's become so bad, I don't know if you heard of this, have you, ever, have you heard of the show hole? This is an actual term now in psychology, the show hole, where people have been binge-watched a show on Netflix so much, they get to the end and there's no new episodes, and they get depressed. It's a serious thing. There's a feeling of emptiness. Because they've tried to fill the emptiness on the inside with a TV show. And now they have these feelings of dread and emptiness because there's no new episodes to watch. You see, we've sacrificed engagement for entertainment. And finally, and I'm sure most of us can relate to this one, the last way we kind of view our homes is busyness. We, just, we look at our homes as being the place of busyness. Like, like just me kind of introducing this idea, you think to yourself, how can I open my homes for people to come in? Like, when would I do that? Do you know what my schedule is like? I've got kids. I mean, I, I've got to get them up, and I've got to get breakfast and lunch made and get them to school, and then I've got to go to my job, and then I come home, and I pick them up, and then I'm bringing them to soccer, and I've got to make dinner, and then I've got these commitments at night, and then I've got to help them with their homework, and it's all of my day and all of my time spent just completing my tasks. When would I have someone into my home? Because I am so incredibly busy. And if you're anything like me, when you get those moments of non-busyness, you don't know what to do. And you get a little worried. Like, I'm supposed to be doing something. I should be busy. And you find something else to keep you busy. And we've made ourselves so busy, we've kind of busied relationships right out of our lives. We've busied neighbors right out of our lives. Because our home is full of just busyness and chaos you see, I want to put forth to you today that if we kind of think of our homes in a different way, if we think of our homes as a tool that God may have provided to us to do something with, perhaps we could make a difference. Perhaps even we could change the world. We're going to start with a scripture found in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. No one's really sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but a lot of people think Paul did. I kind of think Paul did because a lot of it kind of sounds the same. But Paul, because Paul tends to be a little blunt and a little direct, and he does the same thing here in Hebrews 13. He says this to, to the group of, of Christians that are kind of meeting for church and, and meeting, like, meeting needs of the community. He says this, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing. He says, do not neglect. Don't forget, because it's very easy to forget, isn't it? 
It's very easy to get caught up in our lives and caught up in what we're doing, so much so that we kind of forget to even be involved, that we kind of forget to engage, that we forget to connect. And at the end of the day, we think, if you're, you're laying in your bed, oh, I should have done that. Oh, I should have went off and said hi. Oh, I should have I invited someone over for dinner, but it's too late. And then tomorrow we do the same thing. It's so easy and we're so prone to forget. It's kind of like gravity, right? Gravity, it has this, this pull, it pulls us all into the earth and it takes thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of energy to push a rocket or a space shuttle out of Earth's gravitational pull. It takes a ton of, of resource and a ton of energy to do it. And the same way, it's like the, the psychological gravity where our thoughts are always pulled inward to us. And it takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort to get our thoughts not focused on us, but focused outside and maybe on our neighbors or other people. It's hard and it takes energy. But in doing so, Paul says, do not neglect. Don't forget. Like, resist that tendency. Resist that pull so that all of your, your, your thoughts aren't focused on you. Because by nature, by nature, you're, we're prone to think only about ourselves. And our thoughts become all focused on ourself. And Paul's saying, don't allow your life to be just about you. Resist the pull. Use your energy. Don't neglect. Don't forget. Practice hospitality. Put other people before yourself. Resist the self-centered life. Because the tendency is to think only of yourself. He's saying there's always going to be an excuse. You're always going to be too busy or, or you're going to need to, to rest at night or you, you, need, you need to get away to kind of recoup your energy. And I, I get that. I'm, I'm an introvert. You might not know that. I'm an introvert. And Sunday mornings take all of my energy. And when I go home, I need to crash. He's saying, you might need that as, as a time. But don't allow that to be the pool. Don't allow that to be the, the, kind of the exception. Resist that pool for, for that self-centered, that self-focused life. And practice hospitality. Then he goes on and he addresses the Roman church and he says this, and this is this, this kind of incredible connection about hospitality and, and God and, and how God kind of connects uh, hospitality throughout all the scripture. He says this, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. And how did Jesus accept us? That while we were yet sinners, he died for us. That while we were still enemies with him, he decided to love us. There's this incredible idea that, that throughout all of the scriptures, when you look at the scriptures of the whole, it's really a story of God's hospitality to us. That he looked out this fallen creation and he said, I want to be in a relationship with you. I want you to be a part of my life. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to kind of build that relationship with you. So much so that he sent his own son into the world to die for us so that he could have a relationship with us. He said, I will do whatever it takes to open my life to you so that we can be in a relationship. The entire scripture is this long kind of story of God's hospitality for you and for me. And Paul's saying, just as Jesus, just as God did that for you, so do that for other people. Just as you experienced his grace, his mercy, his love, show that to other people as well. When we go back to that word hospitality, if you could put that, that up again. The first part of that word is hospital. It's almost like God's saying, I, I want you to put the hospital back in hospitality. I want, when, when you interact with people, I want you to show grace. I want you to show mercy. I want you to show love, just as Jesus did that for you. It's so easy to get wrapped up in the idea of hospitality as being something awkward and something uncomfortable. God's saying, I want it to be so much bigger than that. I want you to show hospitality. I want you to show grace, and I want you to show mercy to strangers, to your neighbors, to people you may not even know. 
because perhaps this was my way, this was my plan all along of changing the world. That you might be a little bit uncomfortable at first by inviting people in, but when you do, something significant can happen. This little beginning can start something significant and change the world. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you hear this kind of stuff and you're like, yeah, that sounds good, but I've met Christians and they don't do that. You're right. We have lost the art of doing this, but that is not an excuse for us. Paul says, do not neglect. It's a, it's a command. Don't neglect practicing hospitality. I need you to do this. As a Christ follower, this is one of the things we have to do. Because if we've experienced the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus, we need to show that same grace and mercy and love to the people around us. And when you start doing it, it's going to get tough. And when you start doing it, it's going to feel uncomfortable. There's going to be excuses that come up. There's going to be reasons you shouldn't. I remember when my wife and I first started uh, kind of inviting people in our home. When we got married, we moved up here, and we had this really small apartment, and we are kind of building our network of friends. I thought, you know, we should, we should connect the people. We should have them over. But our apartment's too small. We'll wait till we get a new apartment. Then we got a new apartment, and we got busy. We're like, oh, well, we, just, we can't do it right now. We can't do it in this season because we're really busy, and we'll just have to wait. Then we bought a house, and we had all this room, and we had a baby. And you know what babies do, right? They take all your time and say, oh, well, We'll just wait till she's a little older. We'll wait till we have a little more money. And we'll just, then we'll invite people over. And sure enough, we sat down, and it's like six years later. And we've never really opened our doors to, for, to be hospitable to people. And we said, you know what? This has to change. And we, we made it a practice. Every week, we started inviting couples over. Every week, we started connecting with people, regardless of our excuses. We just found a way. We budgeted our time. We budgeted our money. And we found a way to fit people into our life. And we look back now and think some of our closest friendships started when we started opening our doors and inviting people in. There's always going to be a reason not to. But there's one big reason you should. And that's because if you've experienced the love of Christ, how much more should the people you know experience it through you? I want to close with a few verses, and then we're, we're going to show a quick video. This is found in the book of Acts, and this kind of shows you the, the potential there is when, when we begin as Christians to practice this, this kind of art of hospitality. This is the start of the church. Jesus has now ascended into heaven, and he's kind of put his disciples on a mission to do things, to build this church. And just so you know, the church is in the building. Church is people. Church is the people that kind of love and follow Christ. And these, these people are beginning to gather. They're beginning to meet, and something significant happens. In verse 42, it says this, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Or in other words, they were showing hospitality. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as one might have a need. In essence, as they continued to eat, as they continued to have people over and they shared and they kind of got involved in each other's lives, needs began to arise. And as needs began to arise, the people that were kind of sharing in this hospitality began to share what they had. They would sell off possessions to help meet other people's needs. Day by day, continuing with one mind and in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart. And listen to this. Praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. A sense of awe came on the people because God's people cared so much for everyone around them. They included them in. They made them part of the family before they decided to be part of the family, and they began to change the world. So much so that 2,000 years ago, 
this happened. Now, 2,000 years later, we're still meeting, we're still gathering, we're still practicing church. Because some people got the idea that if I've experienced something awesome from Christ, can't I show that to other people? And when you do, you begin to change the world. Every day, <coughs> normal lives are lived. Ordinary Christians live an ordinary life. But when they begin to open their homes, the door opens for something extraordinary to happen. We're going to watch a video of a lady who has a story just like that. It was presented with this challenge of doing something hospitable in her neighborhood and fighting the temptations, fighting the excuses not to do it and what turned out from that. So if you would, roll that video for us. I always thought I'd go far away on mission. I really did. I really thought my calling would be international, and I never, never in a million years thought that the Lord would ask me to walk outside of my door in the mission field where I live and get to know my neighbors. I'm Kristen Schell, and I live in Austin, Texas. I am a wife and a mother of four children. Any given day, I am in the kitchen or in the minivan. I am active in the kids' school. I'm a writer, and I volunteer at church. We've been in this neighborhood um, almost 10 years. I always knew we were supposed to love our neighbors because that's the great commandment. But how you live that out day to day is hard, um, especially when you don't know your neighbors, which is the situation I was in. I did not know my neighbors. Sure, I knew you know a handful of them. And so there was this huge questioning, what do you want me to do, Lord? Here I am, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to walk across the street and bang on doors? Do you want me to take cookies? What do you want me to do, Lord? God answers prayers in really winsome ways. I was hosting a party with a friend in our backyard and I didn't have any tables. And so I ordered a picnic table from Lowe's. And when it arrived two days later, I knew. I knew that for the purposes of the party, I was gonna have it in my backyard. But as soon as that party was over, I was moving that table in the front yard and it was gonna be a gathering place. And so I painted it turquoise, which is my favorite color. And I did, I put it outside underneath the tree in the front yard. It was awkward at first. So I have this table, it's bright turquoise, it's sitting in the front yard, and now I'm like, well, yeah, what do I do? So I took a whole bunch of stuff out with me. I took my phone and my journal and my computer, and I even um, I had some art stuff that I was working on because, you know, I needed to look like I was just doing something. By going out front, I was saying to God, here I am, Lord, your will be done. Go before, behind, and beside me into the neighborhood. And that very day, life changed. And I met a neighbor within three hours of putting a table out in my front yard. A lot has happened since putting the table out there. There are a handful of women who are now very close friends who I did not know. It has become kind of a gathering place. I'm Bob. This is my daughter, Peggy. <laughs> So one of the best things is just the sense of normal community, everyday life. The neighborhood kids come over. They'll do homework when the weather's pretty. We've had lemonade stands, hot cocoa stands. 
more intimately. Um, it's a place where I can meet and have met neighbors um, who now pop by with coffee and just for 15 minutes, a, a conversation over coffee that wouldn't have happened. The Lord has taught me and I am learning to be present. Um, that, it sounds like it should be a no-brainer, but listening is not um, a skill that came naturally at first to me, nor was being present. It's great to see you here. Loving my neighbors has taught me how to love God better. It's drawn me into deeper relationship with Him. You don't need permission or a program to go outside and be who Christ has called you to be. When we open up our front door, we take three steps right out our front yard, good things happen. Open up your door and let God do the rest. In 2 Thessalonians um, 2.8, Paul says, he's talking to, to the, the people that he had kind of been ministering to starting this church, <clears throat> and he said, it was such a, a, a delight and a joy to share the gospel with you, but not just the gospel. He said, our lives as well. And what, what he mean, meant by that was, it, it wasn't enough for us just to come and tell you the good news about Jesus, but we wanted to experience life with you. We wanted to open our lives with you and invite you in so that you could know us. And maybe even you can experience Jesus through us. My challenge to you today is this. As we continue to think bigger about our neighbors and our neighborhood and our homes, would you have that thought going forward? I'm going to open my heart and my home and invite my neighbors in, our lives as well. It's a delight to share with you our lives as well. I'm going to close in prayer, but I want to make sure all of us know going forward, you have the ability and you have the tools to make a difference and, and to change the world. The question is, will you use it for that? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for uh, just... Some simple words, God, about loving our neighbors and how that can kind of springboard us into this idea, God, of, of showing hospitality like you showed it to us. I want to take this moment to say thank you so much, God, for pursuing us, for opening your life to us so that we could be in a relationship with you. And I pray for every person here, God, as we begin to wrestle through these ideas and, and kind of tackle these excuses and remove them one by one, I pray that you would give us th this overwhelming vision, God, to do more, something more with what we have. Give us the, with the wisdom to, to use it and the courage to do it when it gets tough. In Jesus' name, amen.